Would you open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 4? I think Thanksgiving might be my favorite holiday. Uh, I love all the food, less of the expense of gifts for the kids. And I, I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. I, I, even as I look around right now, I'm thankful uh, for you guys. I'm thankful for this church. As we went around, I don't know if you guys do at Thanksgiving, but we go around and talk about what we're thankful for. <laughs> um, and just Provision Church, I'm just so grateful, so thankful for you to God. I, I am, we're truly blessed to have each other. I, I, don't, I don't say that because I'm on a stage and I need to make things sound good. Like, I really am grateful for you guys. And I really think that what God is doing at Provision Church is unique. And um, I'm just really grateful to be a part of it with you. Before we get into our text, I would like to spend some time praying. And we, we don't just do cursory prayers. We try not to do just cursory prayers at Provision. We really try to pray meaningfully. And I'd like to pray meaningfully over our text. And I'd like for you to join me in praying I want you to pray with me that God would bless our time together, that he would help us to be focused and attentive to what he has to say in the text. And then even more maybe right now is that he would warm our hearts to what he wants to do in us, that that he would warm our hearts to see him accurately. I, I think those two things are connected. The more we see him accurately, the more we're going to understand his will for us. So my prayer for us in this text, even as we see Paul pleading with the Galatians, is that we might look at Jesus and say, behold, that he might just be as beautiful to us as is humanly possible for us to understand. So would you pray with me for those things? Let's pray together. God, in this week where we've tried to say that we don't want to take things for granted, so we give thanks for it. We have so much to be thankful for just in the fact that you've given us your word. It's so easy to take it for granted. God, this morning as we approach your word, as we approach this text and have it in our language (laughs) to be able to read and understand Help us to feel the excitement of that, to feel the wonder of your word for us, to us, in our hands, that we might read and understand. I pray that you would bless this time, as you've already been blessing, God, as we've already sung of of your goodness to us, of your sacrifice for us, of, of your nature And God, as we study your word, as we see how you've designed us to love each other and to push each other towards you, I pray that you'd give us focus. I ask that you would give us focus. Help us to to have clear minds. That is, there are so many things to think about and dwell on right now that are worthy of our thoughts and worthy of our attention. God, I ask that right now you would help us to be able to give our attention to this one thing, to be single-minded in this moment of considering you, 
considering your love for us, considering of how we respond to you. I thank you for your word. Thank you for this time together. I pray that you would set our hearts on fire with this word, that we wouldn't just come to it coldly, that our time seeing, reading, hearing what you have to say wouldn't just deflect off of rock-hard hearts and minds, but God, that we would be malleable, that we'd be open to what you want to do in us and through us and with us. God, grow in us a warmth towards you, that we would feel compassion like you, would, like you feel compassion, that we would desire what you desire. God, we love you. We thank you for the way you love us. Pray us in Jesus' name. Amen. Texting can be dangerous. Uh, I think if, if you've ever texted at all, you understand the difficulty of texting. Uh, have you ever sent a text that someone read a tone into that you didn't mean to be in that text? And uh, there can be a lot of problems with that, uh, I think, on just a number of levels, whether you're texting someone that you hope will go you know, on a date with you or whether you're texting someone who you're trying to figure something out and they hear it as being angry. There's just so many opportunities for things to go wrong based on just tone, how you're understood. As wonderful as it is to have the written word and to be able to send text messages, the written word also fails to convey sometimes tone as accurately as person-to-person communication. It's one of the the privileges of person-to-person communication. I remember my biology teacher in high school said that humans are the second most expressive animals, is how he said it, behind dogs. And uh, you, you may or may not disagree with that, but we, we're expressive. We, we communicate with much more than our words. And Paul here in Galatians is working the best he can with the words he has to express how he feels and what he's thinking to these Galatians. He didn't have an iPhone 13 to text with, but he did have some ink and paper. He did have people who would take it from town to town. And as he was writing to the Galatians, we're going to find in chapter 4 that he was feeling a little bit frustrated with the limitation of the written word to communicate his frustration. So let's read. We're going to go ahead and just read the whole chunk here, verses 12 through 20. And in this passage, Paul describes his relationships with the Galatians in four different ways. We're going to see kind of four relationships that a disciple maker, at least in this case, Paul has with this church. But before we get into the text and before we get into those four different ways of relationships, let me give you the main idea before we break all that down. Here's the main idea I want to give to you. Slow discipleship is difficult, but worth it. Slow discipleship is difficult, but worth it. I've, I've become more and more in the habit of defining discipleship as slow. Because true discipleship is slow. You, someone, a pastor I was talking to you recently said, it's, it's, it's like a crock pot. Like discipleship you should think of as a crock pot. You, you, it takes time. It takes consistency. It takes working long and hard on this. So slow discipleship, this type of discipleship that we really see from Jesus and from Paul, it's difficult. That's what we're going to see in the text today. But we're also going to see in the text today that it's worth it. This, this slow discipleship is worth it. Well, let's, let's read the text together. Verse 12 in chapter 4 in this letter to the Galatians. He says, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. 
you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Galatians isn't a letter filled with warm fuzzies. Paul isn't doting over this group of believers. He's correcting them. And we're going to see right here in verse 12 this relationship that he, he defines, this discipleship relationship that he defines with the Galatians. He calls them brothers. I mean, they're siblings, brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, brothers. He's correcting them. He's discipling them as brothers. Correction can be difficult. Actually, most of the time, correction is difficult, even if it's on small things. People don't like to be corrected. But this is a part, this, this area where we're at, really chapter 4, is this first part of chapter 4, is where Paul's kind of coming back behind the Galatians and reaffirming their relationship together as a part of a larger argument that faith, uh, that salvation comes by faith alone. So he's, he's setting out, if you go back through Galatians, he's setting out these different reasons why they should accept his word over the word of false teachers. So this portion, he's still coming back to them and saying, look, here's why I'm the more trustworthy source than these false teachers. Brothers, I am trustworthy. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. He's reestablishing here his love for the church in Galatia and the love of the church in Galatia for him. Sometimes we can read these books of the Bible and just completely forget about the wider context that they were built in. But Paul knows these guys. Paul's not a stranger to the Galatian church. He loves them. He he intimately knows them. He, He has been with them and led them to the Lord. So we're not reading just a letter to nobody. It's, it's, not some, it's not some mysterious author. He knows and loves this church. And it's because he spent time with them and knows who they are that he can be an asset to them. It's why, as a church, we, we want to be intentional about connecting with and supporting other believers in other places. The, the, the way that we as a church can be a support to missionaries is invaluable that we could know and love missionaries and support them, not just financially, but through our prayer and through visiting with them. As a church, that's one of our goals, is to connect and partner with missionaries long-term, that you might know men and women who are far off and that you could be encouragers. Here we have the example of correcting far off, and that may be it for us as well, but also as encouragers. Here he's, he's encouraging this church as well. One neat thing that I want to share with you is that as a church, we're going to have an opportunity to support some missionaries very soon. It came up all of a sudden. We already got plans underway, but uh, Rhonda and Glenn Stewart, who were with us uh, for the past year, they're missionaries in India. They went back just a few months ago. 
with COVID, a lot of things shut down, and all of a sudden they have an opportunity to have all of the missionaries that are in India as a part of the International Mission Board, which is who we support, um, to meet together and train and be encouraged together. Because when you're on the mission field full-time, there's a lot of challenges to that. And so Rhonda called or texted, messaged on Facebook, and said, hey, we would really love your help. We'd love your help helping with the kids uh, and ministering to our missionaries in Southeast Asia. And she was like, we need to know, like, this week. <laughs> I was like, okay. So we actually have four people who we're going to send over there. Um, I'm one of them who are going to go support uh, Rhonda and Glenn and the other missionaries in Southeast Asia fairly soon. And I hope maybe, maybe that's something longer term that church we can be a part of and send more and more people to be a part of. Maybe that's, maybe that's not. In some ways we're fact finding here, but I, I hope it is. I, I hope that as a church, we would look and see missionaries not as people far off who we don't care about, but people who, who we're intimately aware of, know their needs, pray for them, care about them, visit them, write them, as Paul does here. We need to be the church, the type of church that isn't just seeing Christians far off and being like, well, y'all do y'all's thing. But we need to be seeing Christians far off and saying, we're your brothers and sisters. If we want relationship, we can't do that for everyone, but we, we partner, we, we have partnerships. I think it's one of the reasons as a church, we want to plant churches out of our congregation. How neat for us someday to have churches that we've planted out who we know intimately, that some of you who are here today with us, who we're fellowshipping with today, might someday be hundreds of miles, thousands of miles away as a part of a church who we are intimately aware of. I, I would say, I love you. And I, I know that you're far away, but I love you, and I, I want to encourage you, and I want to support you, I want to visit you, I want to write to you, and that we might feel that way about each other, both here and far. Paul is setting that example of continued and established relationship with these Galatians. Here in verse 12, in essence, he's saying, don't let the false teachers who are new to you, who have not loved you, who have not given their lives to you, don't let these false teachers come in and twist my words. He's saying, you know how much we love each other. Become like I am. I became like you were. He's saying these false teachers are liars who twist words. And it's because he has that continued relationship with him that he's able to say that. It's from that platform that he's able to encourage and correct. The whole of verse 12 speaks to their brotherhood, their love for each other, their kindred spirit, their unity. Paul is saying we are the same in verse 12. But what makes us the same? What makes us brothers and sisters? One is that we all need saving, right? All of us, we're, we're, we're all the same in, in that we have a need. But what makes us brothers and sisters is that we've been saved by the one who can meet that need. That Christ has come for us. Really, that Jesus is our brother, Christians. That Jesus is our brother. He, Hebrews 2 says Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. He calls us brothers. He calls us fellow heirs. And when we make disciples, we're making brothers and sisters. We identify ourselves in the blood of Christ and in the family of God. That's our defining trait. That's who we are as family members. And we have this sure footing to be able to treat each other like family. Using brother and sister in the church sometimes can be overdone, right? You may, you may have been a part of churches where everything is brother and sister. And I love that. I think that's good. 
Call me brother. Call, don't call me don't call me sister. But call me brother anytime you want. But we shouldn't lose the meaning of it in our repetition of it. That is significant. It's a significant thing that we would call each other brothers and sisters in Christ. It's, it's, not, it's not just a hobby that we have in common. It's not just uh, an interest that we share. We are brothers and sisters because of the blood of Christ. We call ourselves that because we have been adopted. It's a powerful title to claim for each other. When we call each other brother and sister in the church, we are claiming God as our Father. It's easy to miss those connections in our vernacular, in our daily use of language. But be reminded, church, that our position as brothers and sisters is a glorious position as children of God. Let's continue looking on at verse 13. Really, verse 12 connects to verse 13. It says, you've done me no wrong. You, you did me no wrong. And then he says, you know it was because of bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testified to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. So we've seen this relationship of a brother, that Paul is coming to them as a brother. But here is another relationship as an angel. He says, I, you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus, as an angel of God. Paul remembers the Galatians as an angel in his life. He's saying that from the sense of they cared for him, they protected him. God used them to restore him. They received him through his ailment. Though he needed care, they cared for him. We can gloss over that as a small thing. That's a big deal that this church said, look, we know that there is trouble in your life and we want to help you in your trouble. And in their acting as an, as an angel, as one who cares and gives mercy and helps recoup. I mean, we think about the angels as they helped Jesus after his 40 days of temptation, that they came and ministered to him. That's what these were doing to him, that they were ministering to him. I feel like anytime we talk about angels, we should just be clear. People are not angels. They never become angels. But here they are, they are acting almost in that space of ministering and caring well for Paul. They received him as they would have received Christ. In acting towards him in such a spirit, they received him as they would have received Christ. And this is how the church should care for each other. This is the ideal. If we look at how should a church care for one another, it's as if we were caring for Christ. And this can be really, this can be really difficult because we sometimes want everyone in the church to be like us. Isn't that true? We want people to be, to have our interests and hobbies. We want them to think our jokes are funny. <laughs> we want them to be the same age as we are. We want them to have the same type of families as we do. We want them to not be weird. <laughs> so sometimes it's difficult for us to receive others as Christ because we don't want them. <laughs> Isn't that, 
Isn't that man-centered? And, and maybe you're thinking, no, that's not true. That's true. Churches, church, in maybe not our church, but it's true in every church. Not our church alone, but it's true in every church. And as much as we can, we should aim to root out the kind of man-made rules that we're building in our mind for who is acceptable and say, we want to receive everyone, even those who are scorned and despised by the world, even those who might be contemptible in the eyes of the world, we would receive as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. We should make plenty of room for those who, whether personality, whether history, whether disability, that could make them feel scorned or despised by others. In the church, they should feel received like an angel of God, like Christ Jesus. Jesus actually established this concept for us. He built it out in Matthew 25. In Matthew 25, verse 36, he says, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. This isn't an odd concept that you're like, Mark, you're drawing too much out of this by how the Galatians treated them. This is what Christ, this is how Christ calls us to treat those who might be a burden to us. That we would treat them as we would treat Christ. Jesus told us to think of the poor and hurting and disenfranchised like we would think of him. And the Galatians did. So he says, what then? What then? You guys who were following after Jesus so well, who were obeying him and treated me like this, who treated me so well, what then has become of your blessedness? Like, how could you forget me so quickly? How could you forget the gospel that I shared with you in love so quickly? How could you believe the lies and spin of the false teachers? What has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Their blessedness was the spirit working in them. Isn't, isn't, can't, isn't that what he means here? Isn't that what Paul is getting at here? The blessedness of the fruit of the Spirit. Look, Paul's saying, I saw the fruit of the Spirit in you guys. I saw how you treated me. I saw how you loved me. What has become of that? I mean, you were, you were, the, you were the ones who would have gouged your eyes out. You were the ones who were radically generous. Paul's calling back to their mind the humility and love they previously showed him. This is how you felt about me. Church, don't forget how you felt about me, the position you took of humility and love towards me. It is, it is critical in the church that we have this verse 15 mindset towards each other. That we might look across to our brothers and sisters and say, if possible, 
they would have gouged out their eyes and given them to me. We don't know exactly what the element here is in chapter 4. There are some theologians who said it, that it, his eyes may have been going, that it might have been something to do with his eyes. And so then to come back to verse 15 and say, look, you knew my element and you would have taken it from me. You, you, would, have, you would have hurt so that I wouldn't have had to. I know that's how you loved me. I know that's how you cared for me. That you would have sacrificed like that for me. Church, our generosity, our kindness, our sacrificial heart for others has to begin in our relationship within the church. And this might seem odd because you could ask, shouldn't we be radically generous? Shouldn't we be thinking that way outside the church? And I would say, yes, for sure, that too, yes. But it should start within our own congregation to those who we're calling brothers and sisters. 1 John 3.16 says this, 1 John 3.16-18, through 18, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Should you love the world and should you give them your love in deed and truth? Should you try to help them with the world's goods? Yes, absolutely. But if we're not doing it for each other in the church, what does it say to the world? How empty and hollow does that feel? Does that not feel something like a sales tactic rather than an overflow of the generosity of the heart that Christ forms in us? But if we see our brothers and sisters in need and we're saying, let us help, we want to be there. We're coming. We're coming to your aid. We'll gouge our eyes out for you if necessary. Then it feels like a full-bodied yes to the world when they say, we need your help. Yes, we love to come to each other's aid. Let us tell you about the Christ who has loved us in such a way that we share so much with each other. Later in 1 John, in the next chapter, he says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Our love for each other is a part of how we portray the gospel to the world. God's been so kind to give us images of the gospel throughout our life. I think about how much marriage is a picture of the gospel. But church, how about our commitment to each other? How about us as a church? How much we can portray the gospel to the world around us by the way we love each other? When we love each other who we see, it makes our love for God who we cannot see that much more real and tangible for the world who doesn't know God. How can we be a congregation that sees the needs of our brothers and sisters and ignore them as we help the needs of those who aren't our brothers and sisters? How does the world know our love? And we should think critically on this. We should think deeply on this. Because the world likes to think that they do this, that they love each other well. But sometimes they do a better job than we do, church. However, we can see in our culture where people are forgotten and not loved 
as a church, we should be at the forefront of those things. In the church, I think we should think about in the church, how are we loving our senior adults who some are in nursing homes or can't get out of their house? How are we loving them? How are we showing them our radical generosity that we would gouge our eyes out for them? I hope as a church, one of our calling cards can be intergenerational ministry. That there is a love between generations that doesn't make sense in our culture and world. Because we truly love each other. And this has been a place of conviction for me in church. I think in a lot of the things that we do, there's a lot of times I stand up here and I say, look, we do this really well. I I don't know how we do on this. I think there's room for improvement on this, of loving, of loving even seniors well. What about those with special needs? What about the poor? Do we think about that? Our congregation is still somewhat small, smallish, bigger than maybe like the national average, but smallish. So some of this may not be as prevalent where you've got like, well, this is huge in our, in our body. Well, then let's be really good at it in our body. <laughs> like, let's really care for those we have in our body because it's easy for, for these segments to get forgotten, right? Isn't it easy for us to say, okay, those who are older and in nursing homes, they're over here. We don't have to think about them anymore. Out of sight, out of mind. Doesn't that happen in our culture, in our world? What about those with special needs? Doesn't, doesn't that happen as well? That's, it, it just kind of, okay, they're over here, out of sight, out of mind. And the poor, too. It's easy to say, well, let, we'll let the government programs deal with them. And there's more. There's, we, could, we could pull more there. But we should think critically on those things. Where are we doing it really well? Where are we doing it very poorly as a church? But we should look around and say, how are we loving each other? Could it be said of us that we would have gouged our eyes out to give it to each other? I think that really takes giving the shirt off of your back to the next level, uh, if we're talking about how we should be kind and generous to others. And honestly, I, I would say this. There, there, are, there are many in this room who I could point to and say, you are doing a really good job of radically loving others, of being generous above and beyond to those around you. Or there's people in your spheres who would say, yeah, they, they would they would gouge their eye. That's just a weird thing to keep saying. They would gouge their eye out for me. So I want to say good job on that to many of you. And I would say as a church, as a whole, that's something that we should keep aiming for. That's something we should keep working towards. I think God oftentimes uses his church to answer the prayers of those who are hurting. Are we prepared to be generous and take the type of risks that we could be an answer to prayers, financially, relationally, spiritually? The way that the Galatians received Paul is the way that Jesus receives us, after all. That we were deserving of scorn and despising, but Jesus receives us with open arms joyfully. Can we be the church that receives those who are scorned and despised joyfully with open arms?
I think we can be. I think in many ways we are. Let's keep looking at verse 16. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? So Paul recounts the kindness they had towards him, his love for them. And he says, have I then? You, you loved me like this. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Of all the things to become your enemy, the truth is what makes me your enemy. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you. They is the false teachers there. They is the ones, are the ones twisting the truth. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. So here's, here's an interesting turn in maybe these discipleship relationships is that sometimes we're an enemy. Or at least we feel like one. Or the other person feels like we're one. He says, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Do you want to know why people hated Jesus? <laughs> because he told the truth. Because he is the truth. The truth is difficult. People, people really, and me too, I hate the truth. Before the Holy Spirit changes us and transforms us, lies are easier. And even after, isn't that true so much in our lives that lies are easier? It would be easier if I could just lie about this. <laughs> lies about each other, lies about myself, lies about my guilt. But those who have been redeemed by Jesus, who is the truth, should love the truth, even when it hurts. We should be lovers of the truth at all costs. But here, in good discipleship, there are moments when we become like enemies because it's not easy for us to lay down our pride and accept that we are wrong sometimes or accept that we might have been deceived by those who are speaking highly of us. I mean, have you felt that before? <laughs> when you're confronted by someone and your first reaction is to puff up against it, but then you realize that person came to you in love and that they were right? That's what, that's what Paul's trying to establish here. I know, I know that I'm telling you a hard thing, but I'm coming to you in love. Hear me in love. Because Paul knew these false teachers are going to tell you everything that I'm saying in the worst possible way. Paul's doing this because he wants to control you. Paul's doing this for these. He's saying, listen to me. Look me in the eyes. You can almost imagine if he was right in front of Look at this. I love you. We love each other. Don't believe the lies. I'm coming to you and I'm correcting you because of love. But it's a marker of maturity that we can accept correction without puffing up, without getting defensive. It's a sign of wisdom. Proverbs 9 says it. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. I wonder how many times I've been the scoffer here in Proverbs. Eh, let me tell you how you're wrong about me being wrong. <laughs> really didn't like that you corrected me. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. It's a sign of immaturity when we only desire good things to be said about us. 
It's a sign of immaturity when we are willing to never say the hard things to others. That doesn't mean we get a free pass to be critical all the time. This isn't just like, go be mean to everyone, hall pass. It means that good discipleship makes us feel like the enemy sometimes. The more mature we get, the less we feel like enemies. And the more we're grateful for the correction. But church, as you make disciples, you can't be afraid to be the one who says the hard things. Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. I want friends who will wound me in love. Who will help correct me. Because we have a promise. In Revelation it says that God corrects those he loves. Sometimes... I love, I love the interaction between my boys. And sometimes one will help the other one try not to get in trouble. Y'all, y'all, y'all know about this? Maybe if you grew up with siblings, it's like, Knox, stop. Knox, stop. You're getting in trouble. That correction is a lot easier than my correction when he does get in trouble. Isn't it so nice when God provides you a friend who will wound you to spare you the father's rod? that we might turn underneath the correction of a friend. But Proverbs 27, 6 is, is a wonderful connection to this passage in Galatians because not only does it commend to us the wounds of a friend, it also warns against the kisses of an enemy, the true enemy, not the disciple-making friend who is working, the brother who is working for your good, the true enemy, it's so common that we confuse who our enemy is because the one who is kissing you profusely feels like a friend. Don't, don't we love that? Don't we love the adoration? Do what you want. Do what feels good. Pats on the back. We can find that in so many places now. It is so easy to find people who will give you profuse kisses in the form of social media likes, in the form of forum posts, in the form of just about anything you can set your mind on. It is so easy. It's so easy to turn a deaf ear to those who are your friends trying to help. Know who your enemy is. Know who your true enemy is. It's not always the one who is coming to correct. The one taking the risk to help you grow is the true friend, the true brother or sister. But church, one of the reasons it's important that we be encouragers so often (laughs) is that those who we need to correct at times don't feel like we only single them out for correction. If the world is the only one profusely kissing, then it is really hard for those who are in need to accept correction. Shouldn't we be, church, the greatest encouragers? Shouldn't we be the one quickest to pat on the back for all the good things? Shouldn't we be the ones who are holding each other up saying, good job, 
keep going. Let's do this. So often, we're only good at discouraging. We're only good at correcting. We should be quick to encourage on what is true. That's where this passage actually goes. Because the false teachers were making much of the Galatians, but for no good purpose. They were flatterers. It is for a purpose, but not a good one. Right? Here, the mind of the false teachers, they had a purpose in in being complimentary, but their purpose was vainglory. It was their own glory. It was that the Galatians would be like, I really like those guys. <laughs> those, those new teachers who have come into our church, the false ones, they wouldn't have called them false ones. They're so nice to us. They're so good. Let me go tell everyone how nice and good they are. Can't that happen too? This like fake kindness so that we can elevate ourselves. <laughs> Compliments can blind us. And the thing about flattery is that it's deceptive. All flattery is deceptive. That's the difference between flattery and encouragement. I genuinely want you guys to know that if I say something kind to you, then I mean it. (laughs) That I'm not faking it. I might have even a time or two said to one of you, flattery is a sin. (laughs) Like We don't say kind things for the sake of saying kind things so that we'll be liked we say true things for the sake of encouraging others towards Christ-likeness. We want to be encouragers. We should take encouragement seriously, being quick to encourage, slow to criticize, never flattering because we love the truth. We can do harm by giving false encouragement, by flattering. We can build confidence where there should be no confidence Confidence where it belongs from genuine encouragement is good. And that's what Paul says in verse 18. Look at verse 18. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. It's interesting of the relationships here. It's easy to think about a brother. It's easy to think about you know, even they're receiving him as Christ. It's easy to think about an enemy. Here's a weird one for Paul, is that he's really like a mother here. Paul is, is like a mother. Paul, Paul's really coming back to them in verse 18 and saying, look, encouragement is good. It's necessary. We shouldn't be stingy with it. And we should never be an enemy long. We should never be an enemy at all, truly, Right? But we should be like a mother. And this is a this is a, a really a deeper level of discipleship here. So is being an enemy. All of this is takes knowing and having a relationship. But this is the goal for all of us in discipleship. That we might be able to look and think, I think of that person <laughs> like I think of a of a as a mother would think of her son or her daughter, because I love them. Yes, it feels strange. That feels strange to even say. For Paul to call himself a mother, but but he does some mothering. And we, we should do some mothering for these believers. There's a gentle affection here. There's encouragement here. 
and there's suffering for spiritual formation here. I think my, my mother did all of that, has done all of that for me. If I ever need a compliment, I just go hang out around my mom. It's an important note here, though, as you think of who Paul is in context with the Galatians, that while we should strive for spiritual motherhood, we also should know that we're not spiritual mothers to everyone, that we don't need to correct everyone, that part of slow discipleship is that you can't disciple everyone. Church, I can't disciple everyone. Your staff here, your elders here can't disciple everyone. So one of the reasons we talk about D groups is, is that we hope that it kind of creates this watershed, uh, this delta of little streams that keeps flowing and saying tributaries. I don't know all my science words, sorry, science people. Uh, but we want it to keep budding out into new discipleship relationships. We don't have the time and energy to disciple the whole world unless we're all discipling together. So be the spiritual mother to those who you're discipling. Paul refers to them here as my little children. If you go and read some of his other letters, he, he does the same thing. As he talks to Titus and Timothy in their letters, he talks to them as my little children. He, talks, he says specifically to Titus and Timothy, my own son in the faith. This is, a, this is a deep relationship he has with them. It's not cursory. It's not passing. He has spent real time, shared life with these guys. This is along with discipleship. These guys have been with Paul in deep, hard conversations. They have worked together to follow after Christ with all their heart. Church, I, I want that for you. I want for you to have relationships where you might be able to look around and say, my son in the faith. My own son in the faith. It's one of the great joys of ministry for me is that there are people that I get to invest in and love on that I get to call brothers. I'm generally not calling people sons, but there's, there's a sense where we're investing in a way. I have spiritual fathers for sure who I would quickly say I am a spiritual son of theirs. They have invested well in me. But it's not easy. This whole, whole book so far, this whole letter in Galatians, has been one long transcript of discipleship is not easy. It's heartbreaking. Why are you being bewitched? Why are you turning away so quickly? Don't you love me? Discipleship is difficult. Here, in chapter 4, Paul, Paul compares it to childbirth. It's like the anguish of childbirth to see Christ formed in you. Whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Discipleship is difficult because it speaks to our intimacy and our own investment in the person. We care deeply about this person, so we, we go after them. We care about the decisions they make. And discipleship should cost us something. It should cost us our comfort and our ease. It's going to cost time and energy and feelings and money and comfort. 
But don't be scared of that. The anguish of childbirth is worth it. 3 John 1.4 says this, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Is discipleship worth it? John thinks so. (laughs) I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Who are you investing in? Who are your spiritual children that you could say, I have no greater joy than that? Discipleship can be disheartening and weighty and sorrowful, but it has the most glorious goal. That's Christ formed in you. The goal of discipleship is Christ formed in you. It's being filled with all the fullness of God. It's the Spirit dwelling in you so that your desires shift from your own sinful things to the glorious eternal things of God. This is the grand work of the Spirit in our lives, that he molds us and shapes us into Christ-likeness, that we are saved by faith. We will be in step with the Spirit. Our decisions and motivations will be transformed. And it's amazing. It is amazing that God gives us the opportunity to participate in this, that we get to participate in sharing the gospel with a lost world And then we also get to participate in helping others grow in his likeness. It's like we don't just get to be done with sharing the gospel. We we help that gospel grow and form in others as we disciple them, as we care for them as spiritual parents. Discipleship can be perplexing. It can be confusing. And isn't that a common feeling in mothers I'm not a mother, but, I've, but I have a mother, and I know that I've been perplexing and confusing. Paul tells the Galatians that this letter is really the best he can do, right? I'm, I'm writing you this because he knows things get lost in translation over text message. He knows they can read a tone or motivation into his letter, that words can be twisted, that he didn't intend. He says, I desire to be with you. He desires to be with him so that he can explain his heart and correct with all the right emotions. Paul, though, had this as, he hoped, as his hope as he wrote the letter. His hope was that the Holy Spirit was working. Paul knew his best wasn't good enough for discipleship and that only the Spirit could really change hearts. So Paul was faithful and did the best he could. He followed up. He loved them. He wrote to them. So I want to ask you this question today. As we see Paul's example here, will you commit to slow discipleship? Can you commit to slow discipleship? That, that looks like who in your life, who in your world are you discipling? Who are you willing to be the brother, the, the angel of God, the enemy and the mother for? Who are you willing to invest deeply in? If we are in step with the Spirit, we will desire to invest well in others. We'll desire to make disciples, even if it's hard, even if it rips our hearts out, even if it means gouging our eyes out. Slow discipleship is difficult, but it's worth it. Intentional investment in others, in other people who will Spend eternity either with God or far from God. It is worth your time. It is worth your energy. It is worth your effort. It is worth your heartbreak. 
Like Paul, we have the one true gospel. Like Paul, we have the gospel that is worth our energy and effort to protect from false teachers. We have a gospel of Jesus Christ that declares to us a perfect creator, a God who is just and good and who loves us. He loves us so well that he created us. He loves us so well that he created us to be with him. That was the purpose. Your purpose in life is to be with your God. And sin is rejecting God. Our sin from the Garden of Eden is that we rejected God's plan and his relationship. But while we rejected God, God rescued us. He didn't leave us in our sin. Our sin deserved a consequence, and that consequence we see every day in sin and death. We see the consequence all around us. But Jesus is making broken things right. The goodness of the gospel is that Jesus didn't leave us in our sin and death. That he, he lived perfectly. He came for us, as we're about to celebrate in about a month, came for us as a baby, fully human, fully God. And the sin that we deserve the consequence for, he took on himself. He died on the cross, a death that we deserved. And the great news is that he didn't stay dead. He rose again. This is the hope and the craziness of the Christian faith, is that our God is alive. That when he rose again, he defeated death and sin. That the consequence for our sin has been defeated in Christ. And so we can stand before the Father, covered in the righteousness of Christ in his blood. He will declare us innocent not because of works done by us so that we cannot boast, but done by the work of Christ. It is only by faith. So what's keeping you today from laying down old traditions or stagnant guilt or sin in your life? Surrender to Jesus today. Come to him in faith. Repent and believe. Turn from the other idols. And in faith, turn to Christ. He will save you. So today, will you repent and believe? You can do it right now where you're sitting. You can call out to God. Say, God, I want to be saved. I trust you alone for my salvation. What's keeping you? As we continue to worship in song, I'm going to be in the back behind those, in those double doors back there. If you want to talk about making disciples or becoming one, following Christ, I would love, love, love to talk to you. Would you pray with me? Father, we reflect on your kindness. That, that gospel is not wasted on us who are already believers in this room. It's so good for us to remember how good you are to us. 
while we deserve death, you gave life. That what we cannot do on our own, you have done for us. God, while the world searches for hope in place after place that turns up death, God, thank you for the hope you've given us in Christ. God, I hope that isn't antiquated or mythology, but God, I hope that is true. I hope that is real. And is real today and forevermore. Thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you so much for the cross. Thank you so much for the empty grave. Thank you for the promise that you will come again soon. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.